Welcome to Turning the Tide, a podcast featuring stories of ordinary people who are doing extraordinary things in the midst of a global pandemic. Our host is Dr. Lionel Young, who serves as the Executive Vice President of Global Action and is also a research associate with the Cambridge Centre for Christianity Worldwide in Cambridge, England. Our prayer is that you would be blessed, inspired, and encouraged by the stories that we will share. Well, we're very glad to have David Hollinger uh, with us today on our podcast. He is the Preston Hotchkiss Professor of History Emeritus at the University of California, Berkeley. And I have especially, over the years, enjoyed his work as a scholar Um, He is especially interested in American intellectual history. He's the author of numerous award-winning books, including Post-Ethnic America, Beyond Multiculturalism, After Cloven Tongues of Fire, Protestant Liberalism, and Modern American History, uh, as well as the work we'll be discussing today, which I want to highly commend to all of our listeners, Protestants Abroad, How Missionaries Tried to Change the World but changed America. What a a fantastic title, by the way, David. Um, And uh, thank you so much for being with us uh, on our program today. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. Uh, David, um, just want to jump right into um, our our time together um, and begin just by uh, talking about, um, uh, just maybe take us a little behind the scenes and, and tell us about how you decided to uh, to write a book that that pushes back on some of the negative stereotypes of American missionaries. That's the stereotypes found in both academic and and scholarly literature. I know you noted Barbara King Solver's book, uh, which many American readers are familiar with. But kind of take us behind the scenes. How sure. did you how did you decide to write a book on this topic? This happened. Uh, <clears throat> um, the sort of confluence of several things I was working on at the same time. Uh, in the mid-1990s, uh, I was just finishing a book about uh, American multiculturalism <clears throat> and the whole saga of ethno-racial diversity in the United States and how we had led up to the multiculturalist movement, which was then in flower in the mid-1990s. So while I was working on that book that you mentioned a while ago, Post-Ethnic America Beyond Multiculturalism, uh, <clears throat> I became sort of vaguely aware that what little I knew, and I did know a little, not a lot, but what little I knew about the uh, Protestant missionaries and their role in American life. I knew about Pearl Buck and John Hersey and Henry Luce and people like that. I began to think that in some ways, those Protestant missionary types of the mid-century decades were the precursors of some of the aspects of multiculturalism that I thought were the most defensible. Mm. There were some aspects of multiculturalism that I thought were too narrow, too narrowly identity politics. But the idea of of reaching out and incorporating a lot of different cultures seemed to be a good idea. And I thought about the missionaries in that respect. And then at the same time, I was finishing another book called Science, Jews, and Secular Culture, which was the uh, developing an interest that I'd had for some years within the field of American intellectual history about uh, 
cosmopolitan Jewish intellectuals, all these people mm -hmm. that had come over during the Hitler time, and then also the descendants of uh, Jewish immigrants from the late 19th and early 20th century. And uh, Jewish intellectuals were really very important in American life from about the 1930s on down for another 40 or 50 years. And uh, they brought a kind of European cosmopolitanism into American life. Mm. And <clears throat> it just sort of suddenly occurred to me that <clears throat> the missionaries were also cosmopolitans of a certain kind. And they brought into American life a kind of a global, <clears throat> more um, Asian-centered cosmopolitanism. So it just sort of suddenly struck me there in the late 90s that um, the, the confluence in American life of Europe-centered cosmopolitanism through Jewish immigrants and Asian-centered cosmopolitanism through missionaries and their families and their followers, <clears throat> that they constituted a kind of parallel. Mm. Not to say that they're equal in scope or significance, but <clears throat> so I thought, well, look, um, I know a little bit about missionaries. Maybe I should learn a lot more. So I got the idea of doing a book on missionaries and their role in American life as a result of that confluence of interest. So just serendipitous that it happened at that time. Yeah. And, and your, uh, I mean, I thought you're, as you, you know, in the introduction, the, uh, I don't know when you came across the, the quote uh, from, I think it was from 1946, uh, the boomerang quote. I thought, I mean, that, that just captures it so well. I think it was, I'm going to find the place here in the, in the book here. Um, it, it's uh, by Bill uh, Gallagher. Yeah, Gal that's right. What a great quote to just capture the idea of your book so well. Yeah, that, 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 the, that we throw out, the American Protestants throw out into the world like a boomerang, which was their, oh, sort of ethnocentric confidence that the way yeah. we do things here in Pennsylvania or Texas or California and the rest of the world should follow our model because we've got the faith. But then, <laughs> then when the, when the thing is out there, when all these missionaries are meeting all these foreign people, they think, well, now, you know, maybe we got something to learn from them. Exactly. Just, they're learning from us. And so then, you, then it comes back with this cosmopolitan vision that sort of um, deprovincializes a lot of Americans and try the, so these missionaries come back and they have all these missionaries on furlough. They <clears throat> go into these meetings of these, you know, the Presbyterians and the Baptist churches and, you know, Tennessee or New Hampshire or wherever. And uh, they trying to tell the people about, uh, you know, what's going on abroad. And then guys get up and say, we did not send you to China to come back here and tell us how interesting the Chinese are. And so <clears throat> there are these kinds of tensions that the, that the liberalizing missionaries were liberalizing in the sense that they're realizing that there's a larger world out yes. there. So the concept of the boomerang, <clears throat> and I'm glad you mentioned that, Lionel, because one of the regrets I have about this book, although you were kind enough to compliment the title, I originally wanted to call it the Protestant Boomerang instead mm. of Protestants abroad. Mm. But 
my publishers and a lot of my advisors thought that that was too cryptic, that it wasn't clear enough. Mm. So we decided on Protestants Abroad, and you know I can't complain. I mean the book has done very well, yes. but uh, but I'm glad that you mentioned the concept of the boomerang because that is exactly the dynamic that the book is about. How, how why do you think the study of missionaries has been neglected for the most part in the in the academy? <clears throat> well, there are several parts of that, and part of it I think is sheer prejudice. There's mm. the sense that you know, these white Protestants, you know, they have white privilege and they've, you know, been on top of the world for so long and uh, they've done so many bad things that, you know, we don't want to look at them too carefully. And uh, related to that is something that's not a prejudice, but has helped to fuel it. <clears throat> and that is the authentic reality of the colonialism and the imperialism that is connected with the missionary project. Yeah. So, so particularly in the 19th century, but really down through the 20th century, and more with the British and German missionaries than with the American missionaries, but with the American missionaries too, <clears throat> there's been a connection to empire and to colonialism. And so historians of the modern world who are talking about international politics, who are talking about you know, American foreign policy, who are talking about the British empire, they associate missionaries often <clears throat> with colonialism <clears throat> and imperialism. So that's been uh, sort of a barrier that's hard to get over. Now, mm. in some ways, it's a two-way street, though, because, I mean, that's an exaggeration. I don't mean that the, there's equal forces here, but the literature that we do have on missionaries um, that doesn't just talk about colonialism and imperialism and racism, <clears throat> that literature, which you've just referred to, uh, by uh, Stanley and, uh, uh, and uh, Andrew Walls and uh, uh, Lamasena. That is a literature that um, <clears throat> it's sort of insular. I mean, it tells the missionary story uh, within its own terms. So we learn what missionaries did. We learn what they thought. We knew, uh, we learn what their operation was. So we have, you know, books like Bob, uh, uh, Frankenberg's big book on missions in China, I mean, missions in India. So there are a lot of, a lot of these books, but they're, <clears throat> that literature uh, tends not to talk about the role of missionaries in world history, mm. tends not to talk about the role of missionaries <clears throat> in American history, in British history, in German history. Now, it does indirectly up to a point. And Dana Robert of Boston University School of Theology is one who comes out of that tradition of scholarship, but has actually reached out a little bit more to talk about <clears throat> um, missionaries in American life. And I latched onto her work early on when I started this. And I learned a lot from Dana. Mm. So she's sort of a, oh, a halfway person, I guess, between the scholarship that's written um, almost in a filial pietistic manner. I mean, a lot of the scholarship on missionaries that comes out of the seminaries and comes out of the faith community <clears throat> is very affirmative of the whole tradition and it's protective of Christianity mm. and it's sort of hopeful that Christianity will repair itself whatever its deficiencies may be and be a stronger presence so it's it's very um it's not 
totally uncritical of missionaries, mm. but it's largely protective of them. Yeah, and I, I have, uh, you, you, you also in your work discussed the student volunteer movement, and I think um, uh, you rightly assert that this is a movement that's been neglected. You know, I've found that, that, that people are often surprised to learn that, that missionaries who went out in the first half of the 20th century um, were often better educated than their peers. And yes. a large number of them drawn from uh, colleges and universities. You mentioned a few of them, uh, East Coast colleges and universities. In the UK, many of them came out of, um, even in the 19th century, many of them came out of Oxford and Cambridge. But, you know, the, the missionaries who went out with, with, with a... Um, um, I don't want to be misunderstood here, but with better education, they, they were tend to be tended to be more open to 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 being changed by their encounter with the That's non right. world. That's right. And the, the student volunteer movement <clears throat> was one of the largest campus organizations, like about 1915 uh, or 1920. So if you go into and this is uh, with all campuses, if you go to a place like Oh, the University of Michigan, say, uh, or Princeton. I mean, a, a, a elite private college or a, a big public university. <clears throat> and the student volunteer movement picks up all sorts of people. I mean, here at Berkeley, there was a very strong student uh, volunteer movement here at Berkeley at that time. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so a lot of young people, and, and to be a missionary, I mean, as of about 1910 down to about 1925, this is... Uh, kind of an exalted calling. I mean, it was a very honorable calling mm -hmm. and uh, people all over the country sort of respected that. And, <clears throat> and uh, more and more of the missionaries then would uh, take advanced degrees before they would go so that you would, you would get uh, at least a, div a divinity school degree and maybe even a PhD. I mean, like Frank Laubach, one of the most famous of all the missionaries, Frank Laubach, you know, in addition to his, uh, to his uh, theology degree, he takes a PhD in sociology at Columbia University mm -hmm. before he becomes a career missionary in the Philippines. So, <clears throat> and the, <clears throat> the people with that kind of education is one of the reasons that they're able to transform the missionary project and to have such a big effect on American life because they actually know something. Mm -hmm. And you, you, I like how you refer to missionaries as cosmopolites uh, in, in, in a way that most people would never refer to a missionary in, in, that, in, 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 in that light. Uh, was that provocative on your part? Well, the, the idea of, of them as, as cosmopolitans, you mean? The yes, missionaries, yes, yeah, yes. That, that wasn't something that was expected because we think of missionaries as provincials. Yeah. <clears throat> they're, they're, they're trying to make everybody like them. <clears throat> but the whole dynamic of my book <clears throat> is how people who go abroad with a relatively narrow view, and I say relatively because even these people like Frank Laubach, mm. who you know, had all this education, yeah. they still go abroad with the ambition of making them like us. Yeah. And then their, well, Laubach, the more time he spends with these Filipinos, <clears throat> the more time that <clears throat> many of the missionaries spent with the with the Hindus, uh, with the, all sorts of Chinese, they really are challenged. That, and they decide that, uh, that these other people 
deserve something other than being turned into clones of ourselves. Mm. So then you get this whole thing about how, well, we've got to have a missionary project that is not simply repeating Western ideas. We've got to de-Westernize Christianity. This is a very common theme <clears throat> among the missionaries of the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. <clears throat> but how to do that? And when they worked on that hard, they kept discovering that more and more of what they thought of as a universal Christianity was embedded in uh, European uh, and Western culture. So they tried to say, oh, well, we only want to teach them Christ. We don't want to teach them how to be good Americans. Mm. And that's a very important step along the way. Mm -hmm. Just teach them Christ. <clears throat> well, what do we mean by Christ? Well, it turns out that a lot of people meant by Christ what it was like to give a, a to lead a normal life in Dubuque, Iowa. <laughs> is this really what Christianity is? So, so you get all these struggles then to try and find out what it is. And so then you go back to scripture. <clears throat> and then you say, well, we'll go back to the original. <clears throat> go back to the, you know, to the to the church fathers, and we'll go back to the gospels. And then, so then you get the argument, okay, but how are these gospels created? And then the letters of Paul. So somebody says, yeah, but you know, oh, half those letters were not written by Paul. Hmm. Oh, well, of what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean anything, or it does mean something. So you get all these arguments as they try to specify. <clears throat> what Christianity is, and that's the struggle that they have, but it's largely a, uh, it's largely an expansive thing where they become uh, eager to incorporate more and more of the world, and insofar as they remain in the faith and remain interested in the missionary project at all, they try to construct a Christianity <clears throat> that will fit. Well, one of the things uh, I appreciated about your book was your chapter on the civil rights movement. Um, and just for our listeners, I would say um, just this one chapter is worth the price of the book. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, that's, that's just my opinion. I, I, you know, I, I found I was working, working on a project last year in Cambridge that very little had been, uh, I was surprised by how very little had been written about uh, missions, missionaries, and racism, the subject of racism. And, um, and um, actually, I want to do more work on that topic. Um, but you, you talk in your, your work about how missionaries come back to uh, the United States, uh, this, this Protestant boomerang, and they are, they are engaged in the civil rights movement. Could you you don't have to give away that, you know, readers have to buy your book, but right. uh, cause, but because you talk, just give us a little, a little bit about that. <clears throat> the, the, um, <clears throat> one thing that happens <clears throat> abroad is that the missionaries see people that are different from themselves without the habitual categories and conventions that they had at home. Hmm. So, for example, a, uh, an American missionary from Georgia or Virginia or Texas that <clears throat> grew up with the Jim Crow system probably was ambivalent about it, maybe thought there was something that wasn't quite right about it, mm. but it wasn't really a big deal. 
then they go to India or Africa or China or Japan, <clears throat> and they meet people that are different, not always black, of course, but different. And they begin to realize that all these other deep people are fully human, mm. that the Japanese, the Chinese, and so forth, these are fully human. And then they begin to reassess their understandings of American categories in that view. So somebody will go to China or India and uh, experience this sense of universal humanity. Mm. And then they'll suddenly realize that this universal humanity <clears throat> is not being acted on in their own communities back home. Mm. So, so the, the experience abroad, and there are any number of people that do this, and my book is filled with you know, quotes from people who experienced this, that <clears throat> my civil rights commitments began when I was in China. They would say things like this, so what, mm. even if they were come from a southern part of the United States. But now, <clears throat> a really important part of this question, Lionel, is the distinction between the missionaries themselves, and I've been describing examples of that, and the children of missionaries. Yeah. Now, it's the children of missionaries who become the most active in the civil rights movement. It's fascinating. Well, we have time for just a couple more questions. I can't believe how fast our time has gone, um, uh, David. This has been so uh, such a great conversation. Um, but let me just uh, try to get to two more questions very quickly. One, one uh, uh, you know, your work has been widely praised in the academic community. It's facilitated some very interesting conversations. Um, but I'm wondering if there are some aspects of your work and your view that maybe need further uh, further exploration, uh, things you would like to see scholars talking about a little bit more, uh, or laypersons even talking about a little bit more as a, as a result of your work. <clears throat> well, I, I appreciate the chance to, to say a little bit about that, but I would preface it with uh, that uh, I'm not complaining. I, I, the reception of my book has been very generous and I appreciate, I mean, the diplomatic historians have written a lot about it, the religious historians have, so, <clears throat> so <clears throat> I'm not in the mode of, of saying Jesus as I've been misunderstood or anything like that. <laughs> a couple of things that I would, uh, haven't been, well, I'll back up a little bit. The thing that most people want to talk about is my demonstrating that the missionaries were progressives in a lot of ways. This comes through a lot, and people want to talk about the anti-racist, anti-imperialist stuff that I have, and a lot of evidence for that. That's fine. In the process, a couple other points that I make <clears throat> don't get as much attention. And one is, I say somewhere near the end that uh, at our time, our scholars and our public generally needs to make a sharper distinction between the morally structural and the morally developmental. And by that I mean, we're in a time when we're very quick to brand things as racist or imperialist or orientalist or prejudiced. And we do that in a structural way, in an abstract way. We look at something that somebody said today or 100 years ago or 200 years ago, and we say, oh, well, that's racist, or that's, uh, that's imperialist, or that's sexist. Well, <clears throat> That's true in a structural sense. I'm not quarreling with that. But when we talk about something, uh, about something that's uh, developmentally moral, that's when we identify historical circumstances 
that are conducive to getting rid of those evils, to becoming less racist, mm. less sexist, less imperialist. Mm. And so if we look at things from a morally development point of view, then we don't just say, oh, well, there's a racist or there's an imperialist. So a lot of the missionary people, the missionaries themselves, the missionary children and the supporters of missionaries <clears throat> were moving us in an anti-racist direction. Now we can go to them, like a lot of people when they're talking about Pearl Buck, you can go to her great novel of 1931 and you can find these Orientalist prejudices in it. Mm -hmm. So there are various articles written about Pearl Buck. Oh, you think Pearl Buck was a liberal? Well, actually she was an Orientalist. Look at this stereotype. Well, okay, I mean, true, but Pearl Buck did more to change Western attitudes toward China than anyone since mm -hmm. Marco Polo. So this is a developmental thing. Pearl Buck was an agent of anti-racism. Doesn't mean you can't find anti-racist stuff in her work. The same applies to a lot of these other people. So that's the difference between <clears throat> the morally structural and the morally developmental is a favorite point of mine that I've seen quoted a couple of times, but I'd, I'd really like to make more of it. Second thing that uh, has engaged me a lot is the uh, the tension between the drive to include and the drive to define. By that I mean the missionary project tries to be more and more inclusive. We want to bring everybody in to Christianity. Uh, but yet the broader that we make it, the more commodious Christianity becomes in order for it to be something that is potentially relevant to the whole species, <clears throat> the greater challenge of defining what it is. So you're bringing all these people in, well, what are you bringing them into? And much of the history of missionary theory is an argument about that. Hmm. So you have uh, people at Fuller Theological Seminary, you know, arguing one thing, people at Union Theological or Harvard arguing something else. So just what, Christi what is Christianity? And, uh, and how can we define it uh, in relation to this effort to bring everybody inside? Same problem applies <clears throat> with the United States, with American democracy. So we want to bring everybody into democracy. Well, the more people that we bring in, uh, how are we sure that it's not just American imperialism? How do we know that our efforts to spread democracy around the world is not just self-serving? So it's this drive between we want to include everybody and we have to be sure what it is that we're including them in. I think the missionary saga is a really interesting example of that generic human problem. Third, and I'll just make two more points here. The third of the four points that I, I said I wanted to make is that <clears throat> I don't think the responses to my book have paid as much attention as I wish to the secularization narrative. Mm. More and more people that are caught up in the liberalization of Protestantism through the missionary project, as they become more and more cosmopolitan, <clears throat> it changes Christianity to be much more liberal, but it also moves a lot of people out. Mm. So the migration to post-Protestantism and I have a lot of cases of that. People that I talk about who started out as, uh, in the faith and they liberalized the faith. And then by the end of their lives, 
they become post-Protestant. So that secularization narrative is a really important theme. I have, you know, statistics on it here and there, and it hasn't been picked up very much. Hmm. Uh, fourth and last, <clears throat> I wish there were more attention to this comparison that I make between missionary cosmopolitanism and Jewish cosmopolitanism. Hmm. I think that the uh, Europe-centered uh, Jewish intelligentsia uh, had such an impact on American life from the 1930s down through the 1970s. And those are the exact same time that the missionary cosmopolitans with their focus on Asia have the greatest influence. John Hersey, the great author of Hiroshima as a missionary child, for example. Mm -hmm. Henry Luce, a more conservative guy, okay, but the greatest publisher in American history, he's a missionary child, and he's very interested in Asia. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so there's a, there's a, a combination of Europe-centered Jewish immigrant cosmopolitanism and Asian-centered Protestant missionary cosmopolitanism. And I think that the combination of the two, so far as I know, I'm the first person that thought of this. So there are many ideas in the book that I got from other people and I try to develop, but that's one that I think is original with me. So, I, so, I would, so I'm making a big deal of that. Well, I think that there are some uh, listeners out there that are getting some ideas for their MA thesis or their PhD <laughs> thesis, um, David. Um, just a, a, you know, before, I want to end on a personal note, but before we do, I was wondering if you wouldn't mind just talking briefly, briefly about, you, 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 and you alluded to this, you pushed back gently on some of the interpretations of global Christianity by some established historians like Philip Jenkins, Brian Stanley, Andrew Walls, um, and you've expressed appreciation for their work, but you do have some interpretive differences. Do you mind just addressing that just very briefly? Sure, I, <clears throat> I appreciate all those people. I've learned a lot from them and have good collegial relations with them. So I don't mean to make too much of this, but I would right. say uh, an interesting uh, point of division within the ranks of the scholars who are now working on global Christianity. An interesting point of division <clears throat> is those that insist on the singularity of Christianity hmm. and those of us <clears throat> that are more inclined to see Christianity as a label for a disparate body of cultural programs. Hmm. And the global South, where we have lots and lots of Christians, <clears throat> And the many of the uh, traditional scholars that you've alluded to, uh, Jenkins and Stanley, for example, um, talk about a kind of seismic shift. Christianity used to be located in the North Atlantic West, and now it's mostly located in the Global South. Whereas I'm more inclined to say, well, there are a lot of people in the Global South that call themselves Christians. Do we get much traction in understanding them hmm. by using the word Christianity to describe them, hmm. if we're going to use that word to describe uh, all these Europeans and Americans. And <clears throat> I think that there's a, <clears throat> a greater tension there. I think that the fact that somebody affirms the faith and uses that language, um, I don't think we as scholars are bound to accept that. So I think there's room for disagreement about that. Mm. And I think that um, Stanley and Jenkins and some of the other people that are writing out of a faith commitment 
have an investment in the preservation of Christianity as a world force. Mm. Uh, secular scholars are less driven by that impulse. Mm -hmm. They may not be hostile to it, mm. but they're saying, well, okay, we got this stuff going on in Nigeria and this stuff is going on in England. Um, what, how, how do we understand it better by saying it's all Christian? Mm. Maybe we understand it better by withdrawing the notion of Christian unity and studying these cultural programs in their particularity. Mm. So that's one thing. A second thing that I would mention that I think is a <clears throat> collegial difference, a matter of collegial difference of opinion, is uh, the role of secularization itself. And uh, many of the more traditional scholars identify secularization theory as something that they're trying to refute, and they're really against that. Uh, some of the rest of us, <clears throat> Steve Bruce and myself and a number of other people, um, uh, Voaz, um, oh, there's a, uh, uh, Mark Shaves at North Carolina, <clears throat> are defenders of classical secularization theory. And we think that generally uh, urbanization, the advancement of science and literacy, uh, the advancement of uh, political participation, diminishes the uh, people's engagement with the supernatural and with institutions that gain their authority by claiming supernatural connections. So that's just a matter for empirical resolution and there are scholars that are working on this right now. So I don't mean to resolve that. I'm just saying in response to your question, Lionel, as to where there are points of honest disagreement within the large community of us that are working on world Christianity, I would say that, and that the people with the strongest faith commitment tend to be really interested in pulling together all of Christianity. Other people may be less interested in that, but it's an open question. And again, I don't want to push that because I think that we're all in it together as a scholarly community. Yeah, I think it is interesting how this topic of world Christianity has brought so many different disciplines together and so many different types of people. While, as you know, some in the secular community have, have not been as engaged. Uh, it's really refreshing to have voices from across the spectrum. Um, I think Cambridge has more recently, um, you know, I'm not speaking for the University of Cambridge, of course, but as someone that works there, you know, tried to get around some of the diversity by using the expression world Christianities, plural, to talk yeah. about how diverse Christianity yeah. is in different parts of the world. And I think that's a, that's a possible way of getting at it. Sure. Um, and, um, but we really, I just want to say personally how much I appreciate your work. It's been, um, uh, it has uh, helped me in my own scholarship and um, uh, has has obviously been uh, an immense help to to many people. Uh, but before we go, um, you know, you're 79 years old, I think. Uh, right. I should have gotten your. It'll birth happen to you too eventually. <laughs> I believe it will. Uh, I should have caught your birthday on Wikipedia, though. I, you know, Wikipedia's not always right, but I'm sure it got this right. Uh, so when when do you turn 80? Uh, April 25th. April 25th. So, so in 2020, I was born on April 25th, 1941. Well, and you're staying quite active. Uh, do you mind mentioning uh, something about your your recent memoir, uh, When This Mask of Flesh oh, Broken? Thank you. That's very kind of you to mention this. This is <clears throat> um, 
this is a memoir I wrote of, of my father and his family. And uh, <clears throat> the, uh, this is an old uh, Pennsylvania Dutch family that moved to Saskatchewan and uh, was basically destroyed by the agricultural depression and a series of terrible mistakes that my grandfather made and then gradually came to California. But it's a, it's a story of, um, of a uh, Church of the Brethren family. These are the German, uh, the German Baptist brethren, the Dunkers, uh, very much like the Mennonites, which are a more well-known group. So it, a group like the Mennonites that <clears throat> have a series of trials and tribulations. And uh, it's about how my father sort of survived all of that. Uh, it's a kind of uh, Protestant Gothic saga because um, right out of the, of the women's history literature, there's a mad woman in the attic. There's my grandmother who was uh, confined to an upstairs room, mentally ill for the last 13 years of her life. <clears throat> there's um, uh, evangelists that scare people. Uh, there's uh, a range of... Um, traumas that these people undergo. It's a story of downward social mobility at a time when uh, most American families in the 20s and 30s and 40s were achieving upward social mobility. Mm. But the thing that might interest most uh, the viewers of the podcast is that it's about churches. Mm. And the story of the Hollinger family is not so much about faith, not so much about doctrine, not so much about religious feeling, although there's some of that. It's a story of churches as community. So uh, each thing that happened to my father's family, good and bad, is always related to a church, to a congregation. So every place that they move has to do with that. So it's partly a narrative <clears throat> of how illustrating a favorite point of mine, which is that religion needs to be partly understood as a way of achieving intimacy and belonging, uh, so that there's a uh, horizontal social dimension. I mean, H. Richard Niebuhr and a lot of other people, Twelch, have written about this. That <clears throat> Durkheim, that you have, <clears throat> you have a group of people whose needs for intimacy and belonging are very great, and how are they going to be achieved? Well, churches are one of the things that really does that. Mm. So it's the churches that not only bring my family down through the outrageous narrowness of my grandfather and his understanding of the faith. It's also the churches that bring them up in that it's their church connections, which again and again are sustaining and provide them with the tools and opportunity to survive and to become ultimately better people. And I wrote it also um, out of respect, because I know that I'm the beneficiary of a lot of the experiences that they had. There's also uh, sort of a, uh, uh, another aspect to this, and that is that my children always thought that these stories that they heard about uh, my father and all these aunts and uncles were really exotic, because they were living up there in Saskatchewan when it was 50 below zero. And in the winter, they would drive their cars right across the rivers when it was frozen solid. And uh, it just seemed like 
such an adventure. So the, my children kept telling me, when you retire, Dad, you've got to write up the Hollinger family saga. Mm. So I did it partly uh, in, to satisfy my children. I hope that makes sense, Lionel. It does, and I, I have put it on my, my reading list, and I'm planning to pick a copy up. And um, once again, we want to uh, thank uh, David Hollinger, award-winning author, for being with us today. Um, encourage you to pick up his book, Protestants Abroad, How Missionaries Tried to Change the World, but Change America, Changed America. Thank you so much, David, for being with Thank us. You. Okay. Thank you for joining us on Turning the Tide. If you would like more information about global action and the work that we do, please visit our website, www.globalaction.com.